Good morning, and Happy New Year to you. Uh, if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles, and you can turn to the book of 2 Timothy. That's how I feel about it, to be honest, but uh, I appreciate the vote of confidence. Um, and then, as is our custom, when you are ready, if you would stand, we're going to read together from this passage. We're going to start in verse 1 and read down through verse 7. All right, I'm reading from the ESV. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful word. Uh, thank you that in a world that is in turmoil in so many ways, that you have not been left without a voice. Instead, you speak very clearly to us, and we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would speak into our hearts with what we need to hear from you. Uh, because as, as your disciples said, after you gave the particularly hard teaching of having to eat and drink your flesh and your blood that we'll commemorate later, you asked them if they were going to turn away from you, and they said, where are we going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Only you, Lord. Only you have the words of eternal life. So God, let us hear and believe and follow for the glory of Christ Jesus and in his name. Amen. So this has long been a favorite passage of mine. It's been very influential for me, um, but... But also, I just, I love the text itself. The book of 2 Timothy is, um, for me, sort of unique in the way it's set and that it just makes for a great story. Uh, if you're familiar at all, well, yes, I know. It's, it's kind of, it might seem odd to say that, but this is almost like a movie script. Um, if you're familiar at all with what's going on at this point in time, Paul is writing from prison. Now, we know historically what's happened is he was put on trial for essentially for heresy, for proclaiming Christ crucified and risen again as the Messiah. And he's put on trial. He's going to be sentenced, except Paul is a Roman citizen. So he appeals to the fact that he has, as a Roman citizen, the right to be tried in Rome, ultimately by the emperor himself, if need be. He's eventually transported. He goes through a couple of rounds of, of trials, actually, before eventually he's taken to Rome. Um, and he's put under house arrest for a while. Eventually, he's re-imprisoned. Best that we know, he is writing from his second imprisonment before he will go before the emperor himself. By what we know, uh, it seems to be the emperor Nero who will ultimately execute him. And Paul, later on in this very book, explains to Timothy, who he's writing it to, that he knows God has somehow revealed to him that this is going to result in his death. So the entire tone of the book is 
These are last words. These are the final words to a man that he has mentored, a man who has been an incredible friend, one that he calls a son in the faith. And so, like, if this were a movie script, this is, you know, the, the deathbed confession, the man sitting there going, remember, whatever you do, remember. And then depending on how the movie goes, either they, give the, they explain what they have to say in some impassioned treatise, or they go, eh, right then, and die. Um, but thankfully... God did set this up in such a way that he has these final words. And so the entire tone of the book is, is kind of a, look, man, as a, as a pastor, whatever you do, do these things. But the, the, the beauty of it for all of us is that it provides great instruction for what we should look for and seek in our elders, in our pastors, but it's also, it's meant for all of us, right? Later on in this, in this same book, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So it is for all of us, every single one of us, and it applies to everyone, maybe not in all the same measures, but it applies to everyone. As we get started, and I want to lose sight of the fact most of what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three powerful metaphors that Paul takes, uh, takes time to share with Timothy. But the very first verse, he says, be strong in the grace that is found in Christ Jesus, right? So we're going to talk a lot about what we are called to do, who we are called to be. But I don't want to, I don't want to miss the fact that if we're going to focus on what we do then we have to first start with the Spirit, with the grace that comes from Christ Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. Apart from that, any of our effort is worthless, right? That has to be the core. We have to recognize that we go into this with the grace and under the grace of Christ Jesus and depend on that as we seek to follow him as we're called to do. So the central idea then that Paul goes after is there in 2 Timothy 2.2. The things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will in turn teach others. If you think about it, this is really, this is a small encapsulation of the great commission that we read every week. This is the call to make disciples. And in the context of the local church, to then shape disciples, to bring them up. Uh, and help them grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that they will in turn be making disciples themselves. That's a huge calling. But Paul says this is the focus of who you are. He's already gone through in the first chapter. He's given him his heritage of faith that came through his family. And he's talked to him about the power of the gospel and the need for Timothy to never be ashamed of that. That it is the power of God to salvation and now he says, because you know all of this, this is what you're supposed to be about. This is the calling that you have, is that you are called to make disciples, to entrust faithful men who will also be making disciples. And he, then he gives us these three pictures, these three images of what it means, what it looks like to be making disciples as we are called to do. The first one that we have is the picture of the soldier. It's an image of making disciples with focus, 
Make disciples like a soldier. He says, no, well, first of all, he says, endure suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Well, okay, so first of all, we know it's going to be hard work. Yay, good news. Um, but that was, ne- that was never in doubt, right? Jesus said that you will suffer. If they, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. That hardship will come to those who follow him. Talks about taking up your cross and dying to follow him. So we know that suffering is going to be part of it. But it shows commitment. But then he follows that up and says, no soldier gets involved in civilian pursuits because his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. How many of you have backgrounds in military service? Can I just get a quick show of hands? Anybody in this room? Okay. There's a small number. So you guys get this in a way that the rest of us don't, um, I have to admit. But it's interesting to me how poignant and pointed this description is. In the Roman army, in the Roman legion at that time, somebody who signed up to be part of the the legionary commits his life for the next 25 years to become a soldier. So that's that's a little different than nowadays when you sign up for a three-year, I think it's three-year hitch. And, um, And then beyond that, he swears allegiance to the emperor, but the one who essentially holds him as a slave because in signing up to be in the legion, he gets rid of all of his rights, any rights that he has up to that point until the time his service is at an end. So essentially he signs up to be a slave for the next 25 years with the hope of something good coming afterwards. Um, So if he is a citizen already, then he is granted either a land grant or a significant cash payout at the end of those 25 years. So it completely can change his fortunes if he manages to, to go through the entire thing. If he is not a slave and he signs up for one of the auxiliary legions, then at the end of it, he's given citizenship and all the rights and privileges that pass not only to him but to his family. And so he commits himself to that by signing up for one individual legion with one specific commander. So the one for whom he enlists, or the one who enlists him, is essentially the commander in charge of the legion on which he he signs up for. Which means that guy holds all rights to him. And so when when Paul says he wants to please his commander, it's because this guy holds his very life and livelihood in his hands for the rest of that term of service. It makes it very clear. He wants to do whatever he has to do to please his commander. And he could have many skills. In fact, they were encouraged to, to come in with skills. When they signed up, they were screened for whether, what different skills and abilities they had. A guy might be trained as a tailor, or he might be trained as a stonecutter or some sort, of, some sort of artisan. All those were taken into account as far as what sort of station he had. But once he's in the legion, he no longer has his own shop. He's no longer trying to sell his own wares. All of that is turned to whatever facet of the art of making war is requested of him. The only purpose he has is to serve his commander within the army. 
Now, it's an interesting question for us because we have, we have one calling, we have one commander, the God who has rescued us through Jesus Christ. He has given us one mission to spread his gospel and to make disciples. But we also know that the distractions are everywhere, right? I mean, we just came through what is sort of a naturally busy time with the holiday season and all that goes on with Christmas. It provides intense focus. It also provides intense distraction, right? There's a wonderful opportunity to stare into and gaze and use the beauty that is remembering the coming of Jesus into our world. There's also the family and the activities and the food and all sorts of stuff that can, that can distract us for it. And we've just gotten done with that. Now there's this little vacuum. And now, automatically, there's the opportunity for us to either reorient ourselves and focus again in a fresh way on God and what he has for us. There's also an opportunity for all the other things that didn't get a lot of attention during this past season to come rushing in and go, hey, pick me, pick me, pick me, look at me, stare at me. So where is our attention going to lie? Now there's, there's something that is beautiful in this picture too, that the soldier that Paul describes, he's signing on the dotted line in hopes of surviving for a better life 25 years in the future. But God is so much nicer than that that when he brings us in, he makes us part of his army, he becomes our commander, the new life is already ours. We're brought into it. We are given the gifts of promise at the beginning. When, when I had my little practice sermon up here at the end of the, the, um, the candidate training season that we did, um, I got to do Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks about how we are sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? He is the guarantee. He is the first installment of all that is to come. We have God with us in truth forever. And then beyond that, of course, we're, we're also, we are made part of his work. That it's not, we labor on behalf of the army so that someday we will have a life of, uh, a life of our own. No, we're given the life that we were meant to have to start living out and start taking part in now. Training for the day when it is perfected and glorified when we reach heaven. That is amazing. But then he moves on, and it, the, the shift in tone is really striking. Each picture, yes, they build on each other, but they also shift gears so much that it's almost jarring. We go from this picture of, the faithful, focused soldier who just wants to please his commander, now he switches over and says, oh, and, and no athlete gets crowned unless he competes or, according to the rules. That's kind of a left turn, it seems like. But it does relate. Because the, the picture of the soldier gives us focus. Then when we switch over to the athlete, we're called to make disciples like an athlete the picture is of our integrity in how we proclaim God's message. So it's, this is where I want your attention to be. This is how I want you to go about doing it. He calls us to, to compete according to the rules. I don't know about you, but 
I think when I think about athletics and cheating, the thing that stands out the most to me, I don't know, in my lifetime, really, is the story of Lance Armstrong. If you're at all familiar with this guy, he seemingly revolutionized the sport of cycling. Um, he went through, battled, and eventually um, came back from having testicular cancer, and then went on this dominant streak of cycling uh, victories where he won the most prestigious event that they have, the Tour de France, a record seven times. Nobody has ever, the, the previous record holder was five, I believe. Um, and that record had stood for about, I think, 20 years uh, at that point. He comes in, he wins it seven times. He go, wins all sorts of other things with the Olympics and other, other competitions. 14 years after he starts his dominant run, it comes out that the entire time he was cheating. He was doping. Um, he was using performance-enhancing drugs to boost his career. During that time, he had built up a cancer foundation. He had done all sorts of things that were built on his name, and it all crumbled in the space of a couple of weeks. It all came apart. And now, I mean, after all of that, after all the fame and all the acclaim, the only thing he is now remembered for is shame, is embarrassment. Um, so that is, that is quite the picture. Now, you could think that... Maybe somehow, I don't know all the details, but what if the truth hadn't come out? What if we'd gone on for his entire lifetime, or maybe forever, without it ever being proven? And, it, and all that fame and notoriety uh, that he gained for his cycling prowess had stuck. That's the picture of our world. But Paul is talking about, Paul is talking about a spiritual prize here which means the one who offers the victor, the crown that he's talking about, is God himself. There is no fooling him. So when he says you have to compete according to the rules, let's face it, there is no chance of cheating. If you have ever seen a small child try to lie about something to their parents or to another adult and just fumble through it terribly, you have a tiny sliver of what it would be like to try and deceive the God of the universe into saying, no, no, we did it. We did what you asked. We did what you asked. And I'm going to go, no, because he knows everything, literally. So what does it mean to, to then follow the rules? What are we talking about? Well, if the picture is that we are to make disciples, well, let's go back to the Great Commission. What are we called to do in making disciples? We are to, to preach the name and baptize them into the name of Jesus Christ, right? So we are to preach the gospel of salvation. And then we are to teach them to observe and to do all that he commanded. Now, I think in view in the context of what we're talking about, all of that, all of that matters. But let's start with the gospel itself because that's where we can get ourselves in the most damage if we are not following the rules. If we don't give the full picture of the gospel that is given in Scripture, then at best, we end up bringing to people faith in, in Christ who, if they don't really get the, the whole thing because we don't give them the full picture, 
they might be stunted in their growth. Um, they might kind of go through the Christian life really just bopping along and, and never really striving as hard as they, as they should be. At worst, we end up passing along a simple message that somebody grabs onto and goes, oh, yeah, I believe. And then they go through their life thinking, oh, yeah, I, I'm good. I'm fine. And they get to heaven, and they get to the judge at the end. They get to the one who gives out the crowns who goes, mm, no, you're not. You're not one of mine. And that's something that we won't bear a person, we won't bear the personal wrath for that, but we bear a measure of responsibility because we're the one who helped them get to that point. We don't ever want to do that. Now, we all have sort of a natural bent in how we share the gospel. Typically, that, that falls on one of two sides. We either lean heavily into the truth and the facts, and we struggle to bring love to bear, or um, we, we want to be loving and kind, and so we, we struggle to share the full message of truth that, that encompasses the judgment that comes from sin. I don't know which personal side of that you fall on. For me, I know that I'm a more, I am naturally a more relational person, and so I tend to fall more on building relationships, and the risk of that is always that in my quest to build relationships, that I'm not going to be willing to have hard conversations. I'm not sure where you fall on that, but we all tend to have some difficulty on one of those situations, and it may flex back and forth, but it's something that you need to think about, that we all need to think about. Where is my personal bent? Where are the blind spots that I have? As we go encouraging and teaching each other to follow all that God commanded us, we all have natural areas that, um, well, let's just call it, natural areas that, that we like our sin more than others, right? And so the natural reaction is as we shape other people, as we encourage other people in the faith and help teach people how to follow God, that when we come across the area that somebody else has that mimics, that mirrors our own sin weaknesses, we go, uh, yeah, I understand. It's, yeah, that's, that's not good. But, you know, don't worry about it too much. Um, and we don't call for repentance as firmly as we would in other areas because it's a weakness in ourselves, and we don't want to be called to account. God will never be fooled, and he always knows the end. So the challenge for us is to continue laboring with integrity. But the promise is also that, you know, in an athletic game with so much riding on it, right? In the Olympics or even the Roman games of that day, there's so much potential glory and fame and wealth that rode on it. There is a natural temptation to cheat because only one person can win. But the much better promise for us is that in this competition that's being described, nobody has to lose. None of us have to be losers because faithfulness is what is asked. And if we are faithful, we are going to be declared victorious. We will receive the crown. Now that might mean 
one of the specific crowns that's mentioned in Scripture. In, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul's going to talk about he's finished his race and he's about to head on home to heaven. He is going to receive the crown of righteousness that God has set aside for those who love, who love him and look forward to his coming. But more likely in the context of the metaphor, it's just talking about, it's talking about the reward at the end. And there's two sides to that. One is we're going to have God bring us home and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I still don't know entirely what that's going to look like. I still don't know entirely what that's going to feel like. But if you are like me, you've probably experienced times when you have felt God's pleasure and seen his hand at work and, and, and experienced that, and you know God was in it, you know he was there with you, you know he was blessing what was going on, and, and it is powerfully joyful. It, it is overflowing in that regard. And I can't wait to someday, I trust, get home and get the full measure of that as God radiates that pleasure in my presence and it's not going to be marred by sin anymore. It's just going to be joy in his child. That's one side of it. The other side is that as we do make disciples, as we do spread on the message of Jesus Christ, and they come to faith, or they grow up in the faith, that I don't know how it's going to work, but I am convinced that as those we know are in heaven, we're going to be interacting with each other, right? And we're going to be experiencing the joy of seeing God's work reflected in them just as it has been in us. And we're just going to be bouncing back and forth with this, this um, inexpressible wonder, amazement, and privilege. And it's open to all of us. He switches gears again in verse 6. And again, it's another tone shift. Now we've switched completely to the future. We've, we've switched to the end product. As he says, it's the hardworking farmer who should receive the first share of the crops. Well, I think this is a picture, an image that we should be expectant as we work. Because he says it is the hardworking farmer who's going to get the first result. Now, I don't know, again, how many of you have any sort of a background in farming. Telly has a garden. She loves that garden. I'm not sure what we're going to do this spring because I've been trying to convince her not to do a garden this time. But if you've ever done a gardener or if you've ever done any sort of farming, I'm pretty sure you sort of get the idea that there's a lot of work that goes into it before anything ever happens visibly. There's a lot of soil preparation. There's a lot of fertilizing. There's a lot of planting. And then you sit and you wait. And then you water. And you're still waiting. And then you water some more. And then, oh, look, some shoots are forming. But there's still no fruit. You just have some plants. And then you're waiting longer and longer and longer. And at the end, then hopefully... Everything goes smoothly and you have a harvest. Um, we know from other places in Scripture, as Paul says in other places, some water, some plant, some reap. I, I planted, Apollos watered, God's going to be the one who produces the final result, right? But 
The, the concept is that we are still continuing to labor. We are still not giving up because we're convinced that at the end of it, it's going to be worth it. It's going to have a very real payoff. And truthfully, the way Paul expresses it previously is that when he says God's the one who's going to give the increase, is we're going to labor and believe that God's going to work so that even if I never personally see it, I know it's coming. And I'm willing to commit and I'm willing to continue on. It requires a lot of faith that God is going to fulfill his word, that he's going to carry on with what he's promised to do. But I think one of the biggest dangers that we have is we react to certain other types of bad theology with ones of our own. Now, one of the most common ones that, that I've heard people in, in our church talk about is the danger of the prosperity gospel, right? And it is dangerous. It's the idea that God wants to bless you in this life physically, health, wealth, friends, influence, that if you follow him, you will receive a great reward in this life. And that is not scriptural. In fact, it's refuted on so many different occasions. But one of the dangers that, that especially if that is our reaction, that we go, no, that's bad theology. One of the dangers is that we may make excuses for God not working, that we have what I read in a recent article from the Gospel Coalition referring to as the gospel of scarcity, that we don't expect God to be doing mighty things. We don't expect God to be working powerfully. In fact, we expect things to be sort of barren right now because, well, really because we're scared to get our hopes up and then have our trust in him dashed if nothing happens. And that is not faith. That's fear. We are called to work hard, but we're called to work hard believing in the promise, right? We are called to believe that God will do what he has said he is going to do. Now, we're not talking about putting numbers on how many people are coming to faith. We're not talking about putting numbers on how many people are going to grow up to be leaders or to be missionaries or anything like that. But if we're not going into it thinking, God is going to do something powerful, and I want to be there to see it, then the truth is, how are we really going to put our heart into the work if we're not convinced of that? I don't know where you fall this morning. I don't know whether you're struggling to believe uh, that God is going to do amazing things. I don't know whether you're in a period of uh, wrestling with dryness spiritually, but he has committed himself. God has committed himself. If you are a follower of him through Jesus Christ, he said you belong to him and that he has given himself to you. And he says he wants you to keep laboring because you're going to receive the first fruits of what is produced. Does that strike you as odd? that the fruit is coming to you, not to God first? It's a little unusual in Scripture, right? Because when we talk about it, we usually think of things like the glory, which goes to God. Think of the, the, gather, the ingathering of the saints, which belong to him. Those are all things that the fruit 
belongs to God. But here, the first of the fruit belongs to the workers. Well, I think there's two reasons for that. One is because as we are laboring, as we are making disciples, as we are seeking to have other people transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, we can't help but be changed by it ourselves. We receive the first fruits partly because we are being remade as we are encouraging others to be remade in Jesus' likeness, in his image. There's no way around it. And the other is this, again, touching on that, that joy. Part of the fruits that, that we reap are when you see other people growing up in the faith, as we pour into each other's lives, have you ever spent time on your knees praying with somebody over something that was deeply important to them, and then you watched God meet their need and answer their prayer? Does that not bring some of the fruit home to you? Was there not something that reared up in you when God shows up and does something for your friend, for your neighbor, for your loved one? As we see God work in others, then it also it brings us great joy, great fulfillment. Not that we made it happen, but that we got to be part of the process. It's a beautiful thing. It's amazing that we were invited into this. So we have these three images of how we're called to make disciples. I got a couple of questions for you. The first, the first couple I want to ask to the kids who are here with us this morning. I don't know how many of you would already say you're followers of Jesus, but whether you are or whether you're not, I would ask you, where's your attention this morning? Are you guys focused on learning more about what it means to be followers of Jesus? And if so, I'm glad. But I want to encourage you on this, kind of like we talked about with integrity, the need to, to explain and go through the full picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there are things you don't understand about the message of Jesus and why he came, go to your parents, and I want you to ask them. Ask them good questions. If they say they're not sure, don't stop there. Ask them to help you find them. Ask them to help you study, the, study it together, to look up in the Bible where you can find the answers to your questions so that you know. And then also, I would say, don't just, don't just stop there. Obviously, put, put your trust in that. Put your trust in Jesus. Start telling other people. For you parents, I know I put you on the hook, uh, but that was on purpose because this is also part of of uh, making disciples, is making disciples of the next generation. Um, but this morning, I thought this was a good passage. As we go into a new year, we're in a transitional season. I've seen so much on social media of people who are talking about how frustrated they've been with the last couple of years and everything that's going on. Or saying things like, all right, Nobody get too excited and talking about how, how 2022 is going to be all great. We're just going to tiptoe in because we don't, want, you know, we don't want to offend these whatever superstitious powers and make 2022 be awful also. Or people who are frustrated with COVID and worried about what's going to happen or the government and what's going to happen 
or a host of other things. And let's face it, in our church, it, it's been a season of uncertainty here as well, right? I mean, this was a hard year in many respects with, um, with Fudd and Christy and the kids leaving and working through what's going to happen with our church and with the leadership and the direction, all sorts of things. There, there's a lot to say, okay, apart from God, we have reason to be nervous. But this is not apart from God. Um, the wonder of this is that he has given us a mission already. So I'd ask you, where's your focus this morning? Are you, have you been focused on how you can spend your life, your career, your finances, your time in making disciples in the home, in your church family, in your neighborhoods, at your workplace? Is that what you're thinking about? Are you thinking about how to do that with integrity? How to turn conversations to the, to the gospel and the whole gospel? How to use your time with friends and loved ones to encourage them who know to follow God with their whole hearts? Are you expecting that God's going to work? Are you expecting that God's going to do something mighty? Because the truth is we don't have to live in fear as we go into 2022. We don't have to be nervous about what's going, ha- going to happen. We don't have to tiptoe at all. At all. And think about the fact that Paul is saying this to Timothy. He's telling him to do these things and to be encouraged in these things as he's about to die. As he's saying, you're about to lose your biggest support structure for the last however many years of your ministry. And it doesn't matter. Like, it, you don't have to be shaken by this. Because we don't ultimately depend on people. We depend on the power of God and salvation. Let's pray. Lord, you are, you are great and the truth is, you don't need us. You don't need us to bring people to yourself. But you've chosen us. And you've offered us a part in your plan. And we are grateful. So as we go into this time, where we are given the gift of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, let it be a powerful reminder to us that we have been bought with a price and that we have been bought for a purpose. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.